Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Lee Honeywell. Lee's LinkedIn profile says that she's about security, crisis management, diversity, and painting. She's well known for organizing the Never Again Pledge, which gained nearly 3,000 signatures from tech employees vowing to refuse to help build a Muslim registry as proposed by President Donald Trump during his campaign. She's led security initiatives at companies like Microsoft, Salesforce, and Slack. During the past few years, Lee's work has taken an exciting turn. She's been focused on social issues at both the ACLU and now at her new company, Tall Poppy. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Caroline. It's uh, so great to be here. Um, thank you very much for asking me to, to come talk with you about my career and what we're working on at Tall Poppy. It is truly my pleasure. Lee, I do like to start things out with a little bit of a personal question. I'm curious to know what you paint. Oh man, so I, uh, a few years ago, I went to one of those like go paint in a bar while sipping rosé kind of dinner events. I kind of fell in love. I was like, this is, this is so much fun. There's something really like tactile and direct about it. And there's also this like, I think in, I don't know about you, but certainly in my career, I'm very driven to like do things perfectly and like be very like high achieving. And, you know, I, I took the last art class I took was high school. And so I feel like absolutely no pressure of any kind to like paint something well. <laughs> so, um, so I paint a lot of like landscapes and abstracts um, are the, the two main things that, um, that I paint and in acrylic. A little bit of mixed media, um, but uh, a lot of just futzing around on a canvas. I'll ask my friends like what your favorite, what their favorite color is, and then I'll give them a small painting, usually abstract, oh. um, for their birthdays or to celebrate particular occasions. And it's just been something that's made um, made me really happy over the past couple of years since I picked it up. Cool. I think it is so nice to have something. I have to think about how I say this. I was about to say that doesn't matter. And I think that's actually not true <laughs> at all. But I, I think it's wonderful to have something that doesn't have mistakes. the same types of, yeah, it doesn't have the same yeah. types of expectations. Um, it has a totally different success criteria. And, I, mm -hmm. and it sounds like it's just about pleasing yourself and, and creating joy for, for other people, which is wonderful. Yeah, it's about self-expression and, and the sort of like physical satisfaction of like producing a physical thing. Very cool. Yeah. Lee, you are one of our few um, podcast guests to date um, that was not born in the United States. You were born in Ottawa, is my understanding. Um, Ottawa, Canada. The land oh, right. I forgot. Fantastic. And I, I would like to know, so we actually, we did, we have interviewed Tanya Janko, for example, um, mm -hmm. another fantastic Canadian woman in security. But I am curious to know if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, why did you come to the US and why did you decide to stay? Um, so I had sort of a long, complicated relationship with my undergraduate degree that involved a couple of, you know, dropping out and going into the workforce and then 
chipping away at it part-time and coming back for a couple of semesters and then eventually I, I finally was like nearing the end of the road um, with my degree and uh, there there was also I was dating someone who lived in Seattle and that that didn't work out but what did work out was working at Microsoft and so I got recruited um, out of college though not strictly it wasn't like the new grad hiring pipeline because I had already been working in security for a few years anyway I got all complicated with the whole dropping out thing but um, yeah, so I got recruited to work at Microsoft on the Patch Tuesday team. And uh, that was how I ended up in Seattle. Um, and I was there for three years, which was, uh, let me think about it, two years and 10 months longer than the relationship I moved to Seattle. <laughs> I got to Seattle. <laughs> but um, I really, really loved living in Seattle. I don't know. How much time you spent up there you're in you're in the pacific northwest now yes i am yeah. i'm in a suburb of portland and i right. absolutely yes. love it i am totally like pan w all the way um it's it's very I'm, new to me and it's it's just wonderful it's different there's so many trees and i love trees portland has the same thing as seattle has where you you get off the plane and you're in the little like jetway you're mm -hmm. walking in the jetway and you're just like smells good here <laughs> yes the air you know, it's, oh. oh just it smells like trees and yes. um i loved i loved living in seattle and I, I really um i got so much out of my time at microsoft in terms of learning the ropes of security in a really profound way um the the first team i was on, i was on two different teams there but the first team i was on there was the patch tuesday team so the tuesday security updates and you really it's hard to think of another it's hard to think of a more influential team in all of information security like totally. and i'm not i'm not tooting my own horn there I'm, I'm tooting the horn of the team which is really um from the sort of diaspora of folks that have come through that team over the years there's really just a incredible incredible set of folks whether it's window snyder over at intel or martin van honbeck who's at um, uh, zendesk these days just really incredibly talented folks have, have come through that team and, and cut their teeth on um, security response and really defined how the industry does that that work. That is so cool. I completely agree with the fact that that's an incredibly impactful team. Now, my understanding is that you double majored in college. One of your majors was computer science. Were you interested in security in school how did that interest come about was that something that you always wanted since you were a kid did you develop that in school did you develop that as you were talking to microsoft yeah, it's a super good question i um on a lark went to the hope conference in the summer of 2004 and was like huh this is pretty this is pretty interesting maybe i'll start going to meetups and meeting other folks that are interested in security and like learning a little bit about this field and it so happened that at one of those meetups somebody gave away a bunch of tickets for the first schmoocon in 2000 january or february 2005 um and a bunch of us piled into a car and drove down to washington dc and uh attended the first schmoocon and at that point i was hooked i was like this is this is what I want to be doing with my life. This is so fascinating. The sort of arms race aspect of it of like you're always having to learn something new. You're never bored. 
Um, and it really, um, I was beginning to see the sort of outline at that point, although the full picture took a few more years to emerge of how the, the ways we are defining the practice of computer security, they have so much to do with how we protect people in society, like how, how we design systems, um, you mentioned the pledge, how we, how we think about what information we're storing, all of these different pieces come together in terms of like how we take care of each other as human beings, now that we have to deal with this whole computer thing. And I mean, I, I joke often that computers were a mistake, but you know, even if they were, we're stuck with them. We certainly are. <laughs> um, so you studied computer science. You also studied equity studies. And from what I know about your career recently, these two things have really come together. Did you sort of always know that was going to be the case? You know, from your perspective, has it always been the case? And then it's just gotten a lot of news attention the past few years. Um, you know, what was it that drove you to study equity studies? Um, and then, you know, certainly I have a few more questions as we continue about your current work today. Um, but when you were in school, I'm curious to know what was interesting. You know, there's such different topics, uh, computer science and equity studies. Yeah, I, I was always fascinated by the intersection between the two. And, and for those like equity studies is sort of an unusual program. So I'll explain a little bit about what it was, but it was basically sort of another way to explain it would be calling it like social justice studies basically any course at the university of toronto which is a very large like canada's largest university about forty thousand students at the main campus um any course in the undergraduate curriculum that had some sort of social justice angle to it whether it was the history of colonialism in latin america or i took a class on philosophy of human sexuality or you know all sorts of different history sociology um, psychology classes that had some sort of angle of talking about justice and diversity and inclusion. There were, I actually like broke out a spreadsheet at one point and figured out how many classes I had to choose from and it was 304. I had to use some regexes to um, break up the list because uh, it was a bit of a mess. But um, yeah, so I ended up taking classes that really spanned the gamut of human experience and that really prepared me well for thinking as a technologist, not just about myself and how I might use technology, but being able to bring empathy and concern for how, I, how other people might use technology, how technology might be used against other people or not in service of other people. And, you know, that, that led to things like the pledge um, and to a lot of, just a lot of my body of work has been about thinking about how we might like, prevent the kinds of abuses that we see through technology, sometimes by building fresh kinds of technology, but in other cases by thinking critically, critically about the technology we're building. Very, very cool. So definitely, oh, I just want to, uh, yes, one please. more little anecdote. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that I loved about that sort of double major experience of doing the like hard science, computer science program, but also doing these like in some cases like social sciences, but in other cases like a little squishier human kind of courses was getting to cross the two. I, there was one course that I took that I wanted to make a point about 
the use of a particular term in the sociological literature. And I wrote a Perl script to like scrape Google Scholar and extract a bunch of different data points that I couldn't get otherwise. And for a uh, disability studies class, I built an Arduino based device that told a story through Morse code um, to make a point about uh, the, the images we project onto people with disabilities who use mobility devices that somebody can be nonverbal speaking wise, but they're, you know, able to communicate if you're, if you, if they have an access to adaptive technology, that if you have the technology there that can enable someone to communicate, there's this whole world of, of possibilities. And there's been lots of like media about people who are locked in and stuff and getting, getting them access to communications devices, I think is a really, really powerful thing. That is so cool. I think that technology can be used for such good and it can be used for such evil. And I think that the, the human experience and the fact that today in so many parts of the world, it, technology is sort of this unavoidable part of it um, is, is really fascinating. Lee, I've seen you for more than a decade now as, as a defender of people. Um, you've been hunting down trolls in online communities since at least 2008. Why do you care so much about these things? Um, you know, a skeptic might say, okay, you were trying to figure out school and work and you moved to the US and you know now there's been this this president elected uh, whose views you disagree with and you know some people might ask like why why not just bail you know why not why not you know see if maybe there's a better quality of life to be had elsewhere you know but but what i've seen from you is you're like my goodness we have some big problems to solve is there a way in which I can help? And so I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are on, on how you came to be this way. You know, why do you care so much about it? Oh gosh, that's, that's such a big thorny question. It is a big question. <laughs> I, uh, I was fortunate to be raised by, by parents who, who themselves care a lot. In terms of identifying where, where I can have the most impact, that's definitely been one of the sort of questions that I ask myself at, when I'm at inflection points in my career. And when, when the, the Trump election happened in 2016, I, I definitely like did some soul searching of, do, do I want to stay in the US? Do I, need to, do I need to go home to Canada and work on election protection efforts there? Do I just stay at the job I was at at the time at Slack, but like do it from the Vancouver office, like figuring, figuring out what those, those variables were. Um, and ultimately this opportunity came along to work at the ACLU and it really seemed like in terms of where I could have an impact, what the world needed, <laughs> uh, what I needed, um, it really was just really fortuitous that, uh, that this opportunity happened. Um, and so I was really lucky to be able to go there for a year and work with some of the top human rights lawyers in the country in thinking about the ACLU's response to the the new agenda from the new administration. And one of the one of the interesting things, it was an incredibly humbling experience going from 
you know, Silicon Valley venture funded tech company where like the engineer is king to the country's like oldest human rights litigation law firm that's mm -hmm. turning a hundred next year. It's sort of wild to think of like that scale of an institution. I was just like, oh, I'm just, I'm just here to help out the lawyers, you know? <laughs> it was very, very different where the, the sort of center of gravity organizationally was. And that was, it was a really good experience overall seeing like how tech work can serve other means, can, can serve like sort of serve other masters than what we're used to in, in tech companies in the Bay Area, I think. That is very cool. And more recently, you've taken another turn and, and trying something, uh, which from my understanding is new for you, uh, which is entrepreneurship. And I'll actually kind of back up a little bit uh, and I'll ask you, because I Googled this yesterday, <laughs> tell our listeners, what is tall poppy syndrome? So tall poppy syndrome, I describe it as a commonwealthism. It's not something that people say in the States, but you tell an, America, an Australian or a New Zealander or a Canadian, and they're like, oh yes, tall poppy syndrome. Um, commonwealth cultures often have this thing of like, somebody gets too big for their britches and you have to cut them down, right? There's a, it's a very sort of, it's very alien to Americans where there's you know, the cult of the entrepreneur, everybody standing for Elon Musk, like this is, this is very much the culture here. Um, but in other parts of the world, there's sort of a like, oh, are you sure you wanna like stick your neck out like that? And the, the image of the tall poppy is that the, the poppy that grows up too high gets cut down. And conversely, what we do at Tall Poppy is we protect the tall poppies. Very cool. Yeah. Is there, is there a particular individual, and you don't have to name them, and you don't even have to answer this question if you don't want to, but okay. I am <laughs> curious, is there a particular tall poppy that inspired you to do this type of work? Oh, that's such a good question. Is it you, for example? You know, it, <laughs> right? Because I, I think that's fascinating, right? So if there is sort of this culture in certain parts of the world where, you know, you're kind of not supposed to stick your neck out, you know, and then here's Lee, you know, finding <laughs> her place in the world and, and wanting to, right? And feeling this urge to just like reach up toward the sun, you know, and then, and then coming to this land where, you know, that is really sort of, um, you know, revered, but at the same time, you know, not without noticing all sorts of other problems. So, I mean, it's just really interesting to me. Are, are you the tall poppy? That's such a good framing. I think the, um, when I think about what's really inspired me to do this work, I, I sometimes wonder if I, I come at I come at the entrepreneurialism thing from maybe a little different angle than some folks do. And this has actually been like a really good decision making rubric in my life is like, what would I regret not doing? If I if I don't do this thing, if I don't start this company, I would regret that. I should do that thing. Cool. <laughs> you know? But when I think about who has inspired me, so much of it has been as I, I think of of the last like ten or so years of internet troll hunting and working with um, whether it's people who are coming forward as Me Too whistleblowers or domestic violence survivors or activists who were speaking out online and being attacked over it. 
I think the the thing that's really inspired me is just being able to to say like I hear you I, I see what you're going through it sucks and I believe you let's see what we can do to make it better and and having that be like a powerful moment for people nothing motivates me more than that is being able to be there for someone when they need need assistance to be able to speak out to be able to have a voice and being able to to make that just a little easier and just a little less scary that's that's really what inspires me that is so cool i have two young kids and so the way in which i look at the world a lot of times i think like okay well, what's this going to be like for my kids and yeah as my kids go into the world i just think it would be so amazing <laughs> for there to be people on the planet like you who are looking out you know, I think that's really, really phenomenal. Lee, tell me, entrepreneurship, I expect, uh, is different from working for the ACLU, is different from working for Slack, is different from working oh, for Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are the, what are your favorite and your least favorite parts of starting your own company? Least favorite part of starting my own company is the like the fact that I have to spend more than like 30 seconds a year thinking about what healthcare we should get is like morally repugnant to me <laughs> and like as a Canadian I'm just like so offended <laughs> yeah, yeah we you have some um, things that I, need to be figured out in this I'm country. sure I, I'm probably preaching to the choir here but just the um the level at which having to think about stuff like basic social safety net stuff like healthcare is a tax on entrepreneurship mm. right people yep. talk about like oh i don't want to pay taxes on medicare or whatever whatever the proposal is as an alternate well there's a tax that you're paying right now and it's with your time it's with your energy it's with the distraction from working with the customer anyway i'm not going to rant about this for too long but definitely definitely least favorite thing so far is having to deal with healthcare makes sense Favorite thing so far is just the autonomy, um, being able to set our own destiny, getting to do this work that's like incredibly impactful with customers that mean a lot to us. Um, it, I feel like that sounds like kind of a trite answer, but it's like really true. <laughs> um, the, the work itself is so incredibly rewarding and, and figuring out we have this core thesis that if we're going to make a ecosystem level dent in the problem of online harassment we have to identify places we can turn our expertise into software and hunting for those places hunting for those those things that we can scale like that's that's been the great adventure of the past year cool that is so cool it sounds like you guys are actually really at least philosophically pretty far down that path which seems like a really great place to be for the stage that you're at Lee, tell me about your co-founder. Who is your yes. co-founder um, and how did you two decide to work together? Yeah, so my co-founder is named Logan Dean. Um, they've been a software engineer for almost 20 years, uh, most recently at Eventbrite. Um, and before that, they worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and they're an MIT alum. We met <laughs> through a mutual friend who I met at a feminist science fiction convention, <laughs> which is a thing that exists uh, every, every year in Madison, Wisconsin, about a thousand science fiction fans get together and talk about how to talk about gender and robots or 
you know, socialist utopias or all sorts of different like feminist takes on um, science fiction and feminist science fiction itself. So it's just like this lovely, lovely event. Um, I was in the process of moving to Seattle and in the dessert line for the like closing reception one year, I spotted Redmond Washington on someone's badge and was like, hey, I'm moving to Seattle, let's be friends. Cause I'm like pathologically extroverted. I'm just like, I'll talk to people on the bus, like no big deal, right? Anyway, so I made friends with people in the dessert line and one of those friends introduced me to Logan <laughs> a couple of years down the road. Fantastic. Well, I wish you and Logan the very best. I can't wait to catch up more. Here is another tough question for you. I love to ask mm -hmm. tough questions. For sure. What do you think you'll be doing in 10 years? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know exactly what I'll be doing. I certainly want in 10 years. Um, so what we're building at Tall Poppy is an employee benefit that helps companies protect their staff from online harassment. So what, is that, what does that actually involve? Um, it involves software that delivers proactive security advice customized to what people use, what people like really do with their online lives and their personal lives. We're not trying to pr protect the corporate network. That, that's well covered, um, at least in the market. There's lots of things. I'm not saying anyone's doing a good job at it. But there's at least <laughs> many attempts. Um, so we focus on helping prevent online harassment from escalating into attacks on people's personal online lives. Um, and then we also do incident response. When a particular employee at one of our customers is under attack, we work with them to remediate the attacks to secure their personal online identity and network and mitigate the damage. So in 10 years, I want that to be a standard part of the benefits offering in the same way as you have, you know, the healthcare, which I complain about, and but also like an employee assistance program or prepaid legal, these sort of standard employee benefits that, that people expect to have from a progressive employer that cares about their employees. There's right now, I mean, Online harassment is this incredibly ubiquitous problem. The ADL just came out with a study saying that 37% of Americans have experienced some kind of severe online harassment, which is wild. And whether it's harassment specifically, but also just more broadly threats to people's personal digital lives, there, there hasn't been a ton of innovation in this space beyond password managers and antivirus. Some would argue VPNs, but those are sometimes worse than the medicine is worse than the cure kind of situation. So really password managers is, is the big innovation in the past like 20 years. Hmm. So we're thinking about what that future looks like, where there's like a ubiquitous benefit offering that covers cybersecurity. Cool. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And maybe I'll be a little better at painting by then. Cool. And, <laughs> and, and better in terms of that for you seems like, you know, however you define that is so up to you. Yeah, I feel like better, better at painting. Like I, I really like the paintings that I make now. They make me really happy. So I think the, what that'll look like will just be like more prolific and more, more sort of in the habit of, of doing it regularly. And yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I myself am inspired to 
go and pick up some acrylic paints. I might, I also haven't painted really uh, for a long time since high school. We um, should do one of those cheesy paint night in a bar things. Oh sometime. gosh, I would. Next time you're down in San Francisco, love that. Or I would love in that. Portland. You have no idea. We will make that happen. Excellent. We, thank Excellent. you so so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It has been a true pleasure talking to you, uh, and I can't wait till the next time I get to see you in person. Yay! I'll hopefully see you soon. Thanks so much again for having me on the show, and I'm really looking forward to, you know, hearing the next uh, the next episodes and hearing you interview other awesome folks. Cool. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. <laughs>